0: I'm Alon Ben Mir, and welcome back to another episode on the issues. My guest today is David Phillips, director of the program on peace building and rights at Columbia University Institute for the Study of Human Rights. Thank you, Alon. Today, we'll be covering a wide range of topics, including ongoing events in Iraq, Syria, the fight against ISIS and Turkey. So welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Always great to be with you. (laughs) My pleasure. So the floor is yours. The battles in uh, Mosul and the fight for Raqqa are ongoing. Those are defining moments uh, for the U.S. and for the multinational coalition. In both instances, the U.S. is relying heavily on Kurds in Iraq and Kurds in Syria as the point of the spear. That redefines U.S. security partnerships. It also raises some important questions about how you govern Mosul and how you decentralize power in Syria going forward. Of course, the future of Iraq and Iraq's fragmentation is a context for the Mosul discussion.
0: Yeah, so right, and uh, the fight is going on to recapture Mosul. And my concern, you know, David, uh, sooner or later, ISIS will be defeated. This is the only question of when, I think, rather than if. But the problem is, what's the day after? And my concern, I've been talking to various people around does anyone really has a plan of action? What's going to happen? What is going to be the future of Mosul? Who is going to control Mosul? What's going to be the future of the Sydney community in Iraq? Do they really want to go back and be ruled, abused, and used by central Shiite government in Iraq? I mean, this is this is, I think, It's an issue that the United States has not been addressing. And to my knowledge, I don't know if anyone is really focusing on this very, very critical issue.
1: So let me um, address your first premise, that sooner or later the (laughs) Islamic State will be defeated. I think one can say with certainty that the caliphate, which has now been declared in Iraq and Syria, will be defeated. Yeah. But the Islamic State as an ideology, Exactly, yeah. I don't think it's going away.
0: I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Yeah.
1: There are 30,000 foreign fighters from 100 countries. That's right. So if ISIS is defeated in Iraq and Syria, those fighters have learned terrorist tactics. They're going to go back to their home countries. They're also imbued with a radical ideology where sensational violence has been glorified so just winning the battles in iraq and syria hardly means that extremism is defeated
0: oh absolutely absolutely when i basically meant exactly that that is as an entity uh, you know the isis will be defeated but they have already established cells just about all over europe the middle east and elsewhere and we know that so there's no question ideologically we are not going to be defeating isis anytime soon
1: you so. raise a practical question about how mosul will be governed Having a battlefield strategy is one thing, but post-conflict stabilization is a totally separate order. It's a major problem. You know, my feeling about Mosul is that we can draw from the experience in Kirkuk to establish a system of governance that would work for Mosul. The strategy in Kirkuk, which shares many of the same characteristics, multi-ethnic, multi-sectarian communities that live in different neighborhoods that don't create necessarily an an organic whole, emphasize the role of local governance. So local leaders being in charge of local politics, those local leaders being responsible for local economy, for control of local resources, enshrining cultural symbols so the groups feel as though their unique identities are established and uh, can be shared. Also, services are going to be absolutely critical. Just like in Kirkuk, where Governor Kareem emphasized services to individuals, no matter who they are, or what neighborhood they're from, providing services in Mosul is going to be absolutely essential. And that's not just the humanitarian services that will be required in the immediate aftermath of the battle. It'll be during the forthcoming period when we're transitioning from humanitarian aid to development, and that's linked to local control over strategy and planning. So there's a lot of good lessons to be drawn from Kirkuk that yeah. would work in Mosul. The only the only thing is this, you know, who is going to
0: make those decisions? Who is going to be, in fact, in control? Oh, everything you it is is absolutely. True, necessary, and needed. Mm-hmm. The difference, I think, is the one glaring difference between Kirkuk and Mosul is that in Kirkuk you have a predominantly great deal of influence by the Kurds. It's not the same can be said about Mosul. And then Mosul is the, the center of the three Sunni provinces. And if we don't know what's going to happen to the Sunnis' future, that is, what it is that they want to achieve, and obviously the future of Mosul. It's going to have to be part and parcel of the future of the Sunnis in Iraq. I mean, I've been taking the position all along that I don't personally believe that the Sunnis would ever agree to go back and establish a sort of artificial unity government with the Shiites in Iraq. That's not going to happen.
1: So in accordance with Iraq's constitution, those three Sunni-majority provinces can form a region. Exactly. So they can um, join their interests. But the broader question that you're driving at, Alon, is the viability of Iraq as a state, period. And that's, that's it. And I don't
0: think Iraq, the viability of Iraq as a single state, united,
1: you know, all three, the Kurds, the Sunnis, the Shiites, I think that's not going to happen. And we see the rise of the Islamic State as a direct response to the polarization in Iraqi politics. It was the governance style of Nouri al-Maliki that disenfranchised the Sunnis, which created conditions for the Islamic State to come in. And, you know, we shouldn't um, fool ourselves. The Sunnis in Iraq rolled out the red rug. For the islamic state because that right. was preferable to a shia-led government in baghdad exactly. that wasn't looking after their interests exactly and any
0: time i think even i mean as far as I go, they have far deeper hatred to the shia government they will ever have a feeling such feeling toward isis which means in my as i see it unless the sunni iraqis establish some form of autonomous rule and, of course, you're going to have, you know, since they don't have really major resources in three, these particular three provinces in terms of oil, the thing that needs to be done, in my view, is establishing some form of revenue sharing with the central Iraqi government. The Kurds, for example, sell their oil, but some 17, or 18 percent of the revenue, they send it back to the central government in Iraq to create some kind of equitable sharing of revenue. But that's going to be necessary. That means you cannot really have a viable Sunni autonomy without establishing some
1: agreement with the central government. I think that revenue sharing took 17% of the gross national income from oil and gas sales and sent it back to Iraqi Kurdistan. Yeah. The problem that resulted between the Kurds and the central government in Iraq had to do with the way those monies were distributed and the lack of transparency. Yeah. The Kurds never got their full 17%. That's right, that's right. So They've been complaining, yeah. They, yeah, I am
0: I turned it around, you're absolutely right. So yeah. they
1: asserted the right to export their own oil. They said whatever existed as oil reserves prior to the Iraqi constitution of 2005 yeah. will share based on that formula. Yeah. But for new discoveries and new uh, oil e we're going to develop it and export it and benefit from it directly and on our own. And this was the core issue that broke down the relations between Erbil and Baghdad. That's right. So in this broader context alone, you know, we need to um, have a reality-based approach. Iraq doesn't exist as a country. It has no functional governance. There's a placard at the UN that says Iraq, but in terms of its ability to share resources, share power, to allow its communities to feel as though they're in control of their Present and future, that just doesn't exist. That doesn't exist. And then the question, and I think the
0: question may well be more even aggravated as a result of the defeat of ISIS. So, right now, everybody's focusing on ISIS. ISIS is no longer, as an entity at least, it's not going to be there. Now they're going to have not to face their own bitter reality. Where do we go from here? And that is, in my view, the Sunni Shiite conflict is going to intensify rather than be
1: mitigated so one way that uh, that conflict has been mitigated is by triangulation the Kurds were always in the mix but now Premier Haider al-Abadi already is acknowledging that the Kurds have the right to self-determination yeah and there's talk about forming a committee in Baghdad and a committee in Erbil to discuss the terms of an amicable divorce so if the Kurds exercise their right to self-determination and they cut a deal with the government of Iraq, and they hold a referendum and declare independence, and Baghdad recognizes them, and the U.S. would follow, what happens to the rest of Iraq?
0: Well, this is it. You know, you remember when you and I actually remember when we went to Washington, we met with the president of the Kurds. Going how long now? About a year ago. It was May of 2015. Yeah, and he was very unequivocal the Kurdistan, like the Iraqi Kurds, will have independence. And you recall when we went to the State Department, the, I don't know, I don't remember who we met, and he himself said, I don't think we, that is going to be inevitable. That is inevitable, that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So it's not a question even whether the Iraqi central government agree or doesn't agree. I think they're going, they, they are now realizing the reality on the ground. Kurdistan, sooner or later, is going to be independent. In my conversation with some of their leaders, Recently, they basically were saying, we are waiting to see the end of
1: ISIS first, and then we're going to take the next step. That's how they see it. So as the Kurds move towards independence, it's important that the process be transparent and it be a result of political dialogue. Nobody wants to see Arabs and Kurds in Iraq ending up in a live-fire exchange. Yeah. I don't think that's going to happen, precisely because the Kurds have been judicious about their path forward. What we heard from um, Masoud Barzani in May of 2015 made it seem as though the dash towards independence would happen sooner than it has. It's not gonna be a dash. It's gonna be a methodical process, consultative, transparent, and ultimately, the government of Iraq and the government of the Kurdistan region are gonna be on board. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, I just wanna go back to the Sunnis. Now,
0: I think you, you agree with the premise that the Sunnis are not going to simply go back to the status quo, to Sasquoanti, that is, before the formal rise of ISIS. Now, what's going to happen? So we agree ISIS, as an entity, not as an ideology, will be defeated. Now, what's going to be with the Sunnis, the three provinces? Where do they go from here? My feeling is, unless they're given some kind of autonomous role for a while, then voluntarily they will develop some kind of relationship with the central government, that is, the Kurds, the Sunnis, and the central government, the Iraqi Shiite government. They will have a more normalized relationship. But until the Sunnis actually can feel they can govern themselves independently and have enough resources to develop their three provinces i don't think that's going to happen so, so and i if i may and i want to this is linking my view to the ongoing much larger order of the sunni
1: shiite conflict in iraq and beyond iraq when you talk about a normalized relationship i wouldn't put the kurds in that mix because by the time this happens iraqi kurdistan would already have been out the door
0: yeah i mean normal relationship in a sense there'll be no fighting no mm-hmm. killing mm-hmm. yeah i um, perhaps economic cooperation, economic development.
1: So in the short term, uh, the majority Sunni provinces in western Iraq need to be able to form a region. Yes. As they're entitled to under the Iraqi constitution. That's right. There needs to be a revenue sharing plan. Exactly. That allows money to flow to those provinces so they can spend it on social welfare and development activities. The fundamental problem here alone that is irreversible has to do with Iran's influence. Exactly. The government in Baghdad is not an independent, sovereign entity. It is a proxy for the Iranian government. And whether it's Maliki or Abadi, they're going to act on Tehran's instructions. And Tehran doesn't want there to be a Sunni revival in Iraq. They want to strengthen the Shiite crescent that goes from Basra to Baghdad, to Damascus, to Beirut. To Beirut, exactly.
0: But this is exactly the point. You just hit it right, really, right on the head. And that is the larger conflict, which is Sunni-Shiite conflict, and the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran in in that context cannot be resolved in my view unless the saudis themselves also see that it, that the sunnis in iraq exist as a separate entity which means they know that I, they are not going to that iran is going to continue its significant influence in iraq but the only way you're going to be able to begin to mitigate the sunni shia conflict in iraq itself and beyond it is if the sunnis in iraq feel They are no longer subjugated and pushed around by the central government in Iraq via Iran.
1: Don't you see it that way? It's ironic because the problem and the source of conflict in Iraq was always too much power in the central government. In the past, under the Ba'ath party and with Saddam Hussein, that power was concentrated with a Sunni minority. That's why the Shiites chafed under Ba'athist rule. Now we've turned the tables.
0: Yes, exactly. There is
1: still too much concentration of power in Baghdad. Now that power is a majoritarian rule that disenfranchises ethnic and sectarian minorities, such as the Sunnis and the Kurds. So the only way you can deal with that is with an effective decentralization plan. Iraq's 2005 constitution provides for federalism. It gives significant powers to different states. It allows states to combine and aggregate their interests as regions. Yeah. It was never implemented. No. If Iraq is going to survive and if there's going to be a cessation of the violent conflict that we see going on now, which now has an ISIS component, the only way to do that is to fully and effectively share power. Otherwise, the Sunnis are going to feel disenfranchised and there'll be no investment in Iraq and we'll see a continuing cycle of violence.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I just I don't want to distinguish sharing power versus having autonomy of sort for the Sunnis along the lines say of the Kurds, but having some level of cooperation and working with the central government because of the requirement of revenue sharing when it comes to oil. So sharing power in terms of not being part and parcel of the central Iraqi government,
1: necessarily. So the term power sharing and the way that it manifests in other settings defines a short list of powers for the central government and then the states or federal entities assume powers that aren't specifically enumerated. If you don't have some powers in the central government, such as fiscal authority or customs or border control, then you don't have any state at all.
0: So, oh, no, no, that's of course, that's a, a, a given, needless to say, yeah.
1: But I'm not sure anything is a given here. Well, I mean, Does Iraq I, exist I, in the
0: I, future? Ideally, no. I don't think Iraq will ever exist in the future the way it was under Saddam Hussein. Nothing's going to happen.
1: So we would agree on that, but I'm not sure that Iraq will exist in the future in any semblance. We're clear that the Kurds have a path to independence. We're also talking about how Sunnis and Shiites are going to share their interests— so that they can continue to function and avoid this cycle of violence. I'm not sure that there is a power-sharing formula that would satisfy the interests of the Sunnis and keep the country together. Exactly, exactly. I mean, basically, we are talking about three separate entities.
0: I mean, that's how I see the future of Iraq.
1: And the future of Iraq is integrally associated with the future of Syria. Because we know that Syria, as a unitary state, is going to evolve. Well, we all can look at the map of Syria and know how the civil war will end. There will be different entities, there will be extensive power sharing along the lines of what we talked about earlier in our conversation. So do the Sunni Arab regions in Syria find common cause with the Sunni Arab regions in Western Iraq and form some kind of a confederation or a loose amalgam of shared interests? I mean, it would be good,
0: I don't know, something to, to look into, I mean, I, but I'm not sure that is necessarily going to happen.
1: So, so. N- nor am I, <laughs> nor is anybody, <laughs> so, which is why
0: there's still violent conflict in both countries. Yeah, it seems to me, David, that we are going to, I mean, when you talk about Syria now, it's a completely different story altogether, obviously. First of all, you're going to have to end the civil war, so to speak, you know. and. Sort out the various elements and groups, which are by the dozens, that still are fighting one another. Mm-hmm. So I have that problem. But let us assume, um, before I, before I assume how this civil war is going to end, what is going to take to end it? And I think we have we have a, I have a major major disagreement to the way the Obama administrations have been handling this situation. That is, to witness the systematic destruction of Aleppo, to witness the systematic slaughter of men, women, and children, and to practically do nothing about it, is unforgiven. So, I'd like, let's, I want to explore this with you for a moment. What is going to take? That is, if we do not stop the Russian today, in my view, and Syrian forces to stop this indiscriminate bombing, I mean, that's where they all have to, to, to begin. It's got to, to stop. And then, you're to, you know, then you can talk about much longer, you know, ceasefire. And then you're going to talk about some kind of ending, as in what sort of transitional government you're going to have. It's an extraordinary complex issue, you know. But the first prerequisite is ending this horrible, horrifying,
1: indiscriminate bombing and killing. So the United States and Europe have an interest in ending the indiscriminate killing because the root of the refugee and migrant crisis is a result of the indiscriminate attacks against civilians. Exactly, exactly. And President-elect Trump has also referred to his targeting of ISIS fighters. What's happened as a result of Russia's aggression in eastern Aleppo has radicalized the moderate Sunni rebels there driven them into the clutches of Al-Sham yeah. and Al-Nusra and Al-Qaeda derivatives. So it's actually exacerbated the radicalization that we're all committed to end. Now, President-elect Trump is talking about joining forces with Russia and Damascus to destroy the Islamic State. If Russia is in fact targeting the Islamic State, there is some intelligence sharing and some joint operations that could be considered, but as long as they're targeting civilians and pushing those civilians towards the radical fringe, there's no basis of cooperation between the United States and Russia. We need to be steely-eyed about the situation and recognize that the current situation in Aleppo is a war crime, that Mr. Putin and Mr. Assad are responsible. And for the United States to somehow feel as though we can align with those individuals and align with a policy that is immoral and failed would be a seriously flawed strategic decision. But then let's talk,
0: David, from practical perspective. Can we,
1: in fact, that is the United States, as our
0: European community, bring an end to this without full cooperation with Russia and even aside at one point or another? I guess. I don't think it's possible at all to end at least the bombardment of Aleppo and move towards some kind of more sustainable ceasefire. Unless you make a deal with Russia. That is, you're going to have to sit with the Russians. Russia has an interest there. They've been there for 50 years. They're not going to relinquish their interest in, in Syria. Not now, not at any time in the future. And so we have no choice but to talk to them. I'm not talking about now the terms of engagement. Let's leave that for a moment. But to talk to Russia and to Iran for that matter, I think
1: it's going to be critical. So it is critical. And uh, President-elect Trump has uh, made it very clear that he wants to work with Russia to end Syria's civil war. That's just not a security decision. That also involves some diplomatic leadership. The US with Russia and in coordination with the UN should invite the Syrian parties to Geneva, instead of allowing them to take the lead, we should put forward our notion of what Syria looks like at the end of the war. We should describe the end state, and then we should work backwards from that point with the directly affected groups and with some of the international stakeholders. You know, Russia has to be a part of that, I agree despite the crimes that Putin has committed. But we have to be extremely wary because other international powers, and I'm thinking specifically about Turkey and Saudi Arabia, don't have the interests of Syrians at, at heart. They have their narrow national interests in mind. And they're using proxies to project their own national goals. Yeah. That's no way to solve this problem. The U.S. needs to, make, to take the lead, needs to show leadership, to work with Russia and the UN, but it has to be wary of false friends. This is true, but the question now, the stages,
0: where do you start? And that's, that's really what I'm driving at. That is, everything you said is true in terms of to sit down and, in, and have a vision. What Syria is going to look like or should like, how, how it's going to be reconstructed. But before you get to that point, you're going to have to create some kind of a environment under which this type of discussion can take place.
1: So the environment is created by the US and Russia. If Mr. Uh, Trump purports a uh, special relationship with Mr. Putin, he needs to leverage that relationship to uh, lead to a cessation of hostilities, to allow rebel fighters uh, a way out of eastern Aleppo, to create humanitarian access for besieged communities. That's what diplomacy is. You use your assets yeah. to compel a change in behavior. If Russia wants to cooperate, Mr. Trump thinks he can compel them to cooperate or persuade them to, pro- to cooperate, then we're going to have a, his inauguration on the 21st of January. And the first order of business for the incoming Trump administration is going to be engaging Russia to create conditions for negotiation. With that, and that is exactly what, what I think it should be done,
0: and with that they're going to also to be the, the stick. That is, Trump need to offer that. Let's look for a diplomatic solution. Stop the killing right away, and let's talk for longer ceasefire, then begin this diplomatic process. But I really think that Trump, even even now, that the Russian need to understand if there is going to be no agreement, that we are going to, be able to use the stick. Namely, we're going to have to stop Assad from this indiscriminate bombing, which means I've been advocating all along. I think the United States should be bombing, destroying all the runways, destroying all Syrian hangars where the planes are, helicopters are, and send that a clear message. And that has to be, in my view, has to be told to Russia. We want to have a diplomatic solution, but we are not going to wait for another 200,000 Syrians to die. We want it now. And if you don't, we're going to take these in a lateral action if we have to. What's, what's your take on this?
1: That's how I've been, I've been advocating this now for months and months. So we shouldn't conflate Russia's interests with Syria's interests. They're not one and the same. Fine, yes. Russia wants an Alawite regime to be preserved. It wants to have access to its naval air station in Latakia and its naval base in Tartus. All that can be assured as part of a interim agreement. Yes, yes. And once, that, uh, once the conditions have been created and an interim agreement has been reached, then you stabilize the situation. You create conditions for refugees and displaced persons to come home. We'll return to our conversation in a
0: moment. As a reminder, you can sign up for my mailing list on my website, alonbenmeyer.com, follow me on Twitter at or download my articles from SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash Yeah, Ben-Mir. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, if, you were, if you were Trump for a moment. I'm not. You know, let, let's, just, let, let's take that position. <laughs> and you're sitting in front of Putin. And you're saying exactly what you just said. Let us find this diplomatic solution. Wouldn't you want to tell him as well that I'm determined to end this And we're going to have to take whatever step necessary. Don't you think this comes from Trump to Putin? Putin's going to think about it twice?
1: Yes. uh, Putin uh, will listen to his friend Donald Trump. If Trump is clear and is understanding well Russia's core interests in Syria, he can work towards a deal that Uh preserves those interests and stops the war and deals with the humanitarian consequences. Yeah, but do you, don't, don't you think this should be the scenario? should be the approach? That is,
0: we are open for diplomacy. Let's find a solution. Yeah, I do,
1: <clears throat> but before we start uh, threatening no, no, no. Russia or Syria, we should frame it as a positive win-win. Oh, absolutely. Not, not only for Moscow and Washington, but also for Syria as a whole and for all of Syria's groups. Okay. If Putin balks at that, Or if he's unable to deliver Damascus, then we can move to more punitive language and actions.
0: Yeah, but but I'm just. I wouldn't start with that. Oh no, no, no! I'm not suggesting putting it right on the table. Either or, if you don't, we're going to do this. My feeling is that Trump ought to have that strategy in place. He's not going to sit down and say, "If you don't, we're going to collaborate." But they have to have that strategy in place.
1: Alan, I think the first order of business for the incoming Trump administration is going to be dealing with Syria. I hope so. He's now asked his generals to come up with a plan for destroying ISIS within a 30-day period. It's not only about hard power. It's also going to be about diplomacy and ultimately soft power. So you need a combination of those. Let's see how the Trump administration accepts its responsibility and how it finds a balance between hard and soft power. At this point, they're totally untested. We don't know. I'd like to give them the benefit of the doubt that they understand the seriousness and will take a judicious and balanced approach. But let's see. Well, this is exactly the point. But
0: then let us say you are his advisor. So give him a little scenario. What would you say to Trump? You have the Syrian problem. You are now the the president of the United States. What you just said, that ought to be, he's
1: preparing, he's telling his generals and all of that. What would be your advice to him? Three steps, continue to support the moderate rebels, especially the People's Protection Units, who are the Syrian Kurds that are making advances on Raqqa. Uh, Work with Russia in targeting not moderate Sunnis, but Islamic State fighters. Uh, There's a lot of intelligence sharing and joint operations that could be undertaken. Russia was never serious about doing that. Uh, It used uh, the war in Syria as an excuse to target a a broader audience. And three, envision the end state. Uh, Talk that through with the UN and with Russia. Uh, We should know going into a political negotiation where we want to end up. So where Iran is going to fit into all of this? Do you think Iran has a place, has a room? I don't think that you need to talk to Iran directly. I think that when you are dealing with Russia, It's collaborating with Assad. Assad is primarily sponsored by Iran, so there's a series of entanglements. This is true, but don't you think Iran has the capacity to be the spoiler?
0: That is, if Iran does not feel it's part of the solution, they are
1: capable of spoiling a lot of things. Sure, Iran can do that, but if the outcome, the end state that I referred to, uh, preserves uh, the sovereignty of Syria, allows uh, As a single entity? As a single entity, but with considerable distribution and devolution of powers, including powers to an Alawite majority region, uh, then Iran's core interests are served. And this ultimately isn't going to be about temperaments. It's going to be about interests. But then again, you know, when you mentioned earlier that
0: Russia would like to see Syria governed under, so to speak, an Alawite, In order to
1: preserve its long-term interest but that's not going to happen under this kind of circumstances so let me clarify what i what i meant to say is that syria's powers will go through a devolutionary process the devolution will allow for an alawite majority entity a kurdish majority entity called rojava and the rest of the country will largely be sunni arabs you'll preserve some powers in the central government but the rest will be Well Who derived. is representing the central government? Right now the central government is represented by Bashar al-Assad. By by, Alawite, by Alawite, yes. They will in the near term, but there needs to be a political transition process, but not right away. But you think that's possible? That's my
0: concern. I mean, this is really the crack
1: of the issue here. So I think it is possible, it, once, it once, you, possible? once you stop yeah. armed conflict. Yeah. So that needs to be the first order of business? Yeah. Having an interim agreement is a big step in that direction.
0: And you think this is impossible? That eventually at one point, another four or five years down the line, that Syria, in fact, can be ruled by a majority? Or it going to have to have eventually be some kind of federal system along the line of what's going to happen in Iraq? So That's what, how I see it. So I think what
1: happens in Iraq is that the country falls apart. So I'm not sure that's the sort of model of federal... If,
0: if we're going to have three entities in Iraq, and able to
1: function separately I don't think, I, together. As we discussed earlier, I don't think that we do. But to get to your, your question now, do I see five years down the road Syria being led by a Sunni Arab majority? No, I do not. That's the whole point. You're going to need a long period of healing and reconciliation. You'll need a, a transitional justice uh, strategy. And all that's going to take time given the level of suffering that Syria has experienced. But
0: you need that transitional government. And the makeup of that transitional government, its power, its mandate, is going to matter a great deal. And how you're going to compose such a government, and who's going to be representative in that government.
1: So the transitional government, in my view, is made up of decentralized entities where local control is paramount, limited authorities for any central government. Yeah. If you're going to start negotiating the composition and powers of a central government and view that as part of the healing and reconciliation process, then it will fail and conflict will continue. The interim agreement will have a high degree of devolution and it will allow local communities to really take charge of their present and envision and work towards a better future. But then
0: still, we're going to have to make some decisions to be made on a national level and that's going to be a problem who is going to be able to make that kind of decision that concerns the entire country
1: so this is why i said the u.s Uh, has uh, to envision the end state you can't leave that to the parties you can't allow any other mediator to play that role the u.s is the only country that has the capacity to envision the end state convene the parties compel an agreement and then monitor and enforce it it doesn't mean we do it alone but U.S. leadership is essential. Oh, there's no question. I mean, again, you know, I think we
0: are in agreement on that. I'm a little concerned, we really, that the United States, whether it's Trump or otherwise, probably is not going to be in a position to be able to orchestrate all of that without the support and agreement with the Russia, specifically the other Arab countries, around, along
1: with the Iraqis. It's, 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 we are in for a long
0: period of uh,
1: trials so, Still? so then one of the reasons why the Dayton Peace Agreement worked is because there was a single authority acting yeah. as convener and mediator yeah. other countries were on the Air Force Base there was a contact group so they weren't ignored but the full responsibility for the negotiation rested with the United States and its diplomats that has to happen here as well And I would recommend close coordination with Russia and with the U.N., less close coordination with some of the regional powers that I said earlier, um, don't have Syria's national interests at heart, but are acting through proxies on behalf of their own narrow national interests. But unless the U.S. is going to take the lead and is going to put down some markers then we're not going to have a, su- a successful diplomacy. No, no,
0: I agree, except that I think the other component that's you know, going to have to, Saudi Arabia and Iran, is going to be somewhere in this mix.
1: So I caution you, along because the moment you invite Saudi Arabia and Iran to be in the mix, uh, because of their keen dislike for one another and the broader Shiite-Sunni rivalry, uh, that but, they represent but precisely because of that because you have a strong Sunni
0: element in Syria and a very strong Sunni element in Iraq and that is the main what I'm really trying driving at how somewhere along the line how are you going to solve the Sunni Shiite war for all intents and purposes taking place today and it's waged by a proxy even be that in Syria Iraq and Yemen
1: so I would lower the expectations a little bit I would focus on how do you stop Syria's <laughs> civil war The broader Sunni-Shi'ite conflict has been going on for 1400 years, it's likely to continue. One manifestation is the conflict in Syria. That's why I would um, involve, but keep on the margins, Saudi Arabia and Iran, because they're interested in acting as spoilers, not as peacemakers.
0: Well, you know, we can continue this for another two or three hours, but we're going to conclude for the time being. Maybe we'll have another opportunity sometimes in the future, near future. Thank you so much, David. It really was wonderful.
1: Thank you, and I always love our conversations together (laughs) because you stimulate me to think in different ways. We always don't do it when there is audio being recorded, but I'm happy to be on the record with everything that we say. Terrific. Thank you again. Thank
0: you and uh, sure we'll take it from here okay. you know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of On the Issues you can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements